Aaron Christensen, uh, I would say welcome to 2023, but we've already done a, a horror-themed show together. Uh, yeah. The the first Academia Giallo of 2023 happened just this past weekend, so we're we're going to be opening up our our long-running Hammerland series with a bit of a twist. Uh, despite you know some um, viewer comments that they love Hammerland, they love the fact that we've been talking about these wonderful films for the past two years, and they want to keep the keep the train going through Hammerland. We're actually leaving. We are going beyond Hammerland. We had Hammerland, Son of Hammerland, and now we're going beyond. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean that we'll never talk Hammer Horror again. It just means that this year we're going to be uh, pushing past the boundaries of strictly Hammer films and discovering some other uh, British horror uh, masterpieces, hopefully, uh, by some of the other studios that uh, that perhaps were either inspired by Hammer, maybe inspired Hammer, uh, or had nothing to do with Hammer. They're just turning out you know weird and cool horror movies. Uh, so let's kick it off with uh, Theater of Blood, uh, starring Vincent Price from 1973. We actually picked an, a big anniversary movie 50 years ago. Yep. Uh, this movie came out. So first of all, AC, uh, you and I, we both put together the list for uh, Beyond Hammerland. Right. But they're all, I think, with the exception of maybe one or two exceptions, possibly, they're all blind spots for me. So what are okay. we in store for? in terms of going beyond Hammerland, uh, what can we expect in general? Is there something that we should be looking out for? Uh, mile markers, as it were, uh, as we go <laughs> on this new, new journey. Well, and I, again, I'm really excited about uh, going beyond Hammerland because then we can return to Hammerland. Uh, but yes, there's a lot of, um, basically the films that we picked kind of mirror uh, Hammer's reign uh, from that uh, mid mid to late 50s, to the kind of uh, late, early 70s, mid 70s. Um, so we were picking some really solid British horror that was happening at the same time. I mean, Hammer Hammer really did open the, open the gates for a lot of um, horror, which is not to say there weren't really quality, uh, quality films coming out of Britain and Europe overall. But I feel like uh, after Hammer, after Hammer showed that horror was big business again, uh, a lot of British studios and American studios that were based in Britain, like Universal, had its own had its uh, studio in in London. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think what we're looking for is is another you know um, exploration of horror with an accent, but it's going to be it's it's not the same. There's not that same Hammer feel. You know, we aren't uh, always using Bernard Robinson's amazing sets. Uh, some of these are on location. Some of those are on, you know, in big studios. Uh, I think a lot of these uh, films were from major studios, so they had a bit more of a budget uh, and uh, a bit more star power. Uh, they did not rely on their their usual crew, which, you know, is part of the charm of Hammer. But I think we're going to get a, a wider palette uh, as we go beyond Hammerland. Now, the the first Hammerland series we did focused we focused exclusively on movies featuring the heavy hitters, Dracula and Frankenstein. Right. And then in Son of Hammerland, uh, there are a, a we delved into science fiction like space yep. aliens, but also vampires and other kinds of uh, you know 
interesting takes on classic monsters. Are we going to find some of that in Beyond Hammerland, or are we going mostly into kind of new territory all around? Uh, you're going to see some, you know, there is some Gothic influences for sure. Uh, but I think what you're going to find is that, you know, like there's a, a British quality to it that isn't necessarily a hammer. Uh, because again, we tackled in the first season, we did uh, mostly the big Gothics. And when we did uh, Son of Hammerland, we had some Gothic in there, but we also had some, you know, kind of uh, more modern tellings, kind of like Scream of Fear, you know, with our kind of like our psycho, psycho knockoffs. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like we're going to get we're going to get a little bit of everything. And, you know, like the theatricality haha, uh, that we see in tonight's, you know, film, uh, that's kind of, you know, there's a lot of just exploring different venues. Um, you're going to see some great haunted house and haunting and ghost films. Uh, but there's also some kind of um, uh, there's some some well again as we saw tonight like there's a there's a kind of a precursor almost to the slasher movement in that it's not necessarily about you know who's going to get it we know who's going to get it and the question is how are they going to get it and I think kind of like that's what I love about this film is it kind of uh, ushers in the idea of the creative kill which I figured would appeal to you it did. Um, what I was not prepared for, and again, this is this is a perfect blind spot for me, Theater of Blood. Uh, and I don't know if you were trying to set me up in some ways. I won't stand for it. Uh, it's a movie about film critics, or actually theater critics, critics in general, uh, getting it. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a killer getting sweet, sweet revenge on the critics that wronged him and, and ostensibly destroyed his career. Uh, so thank you for that. Um <laughs> I did. I did twinge a bit in recognition during some of these uh, some of these scenes. But um, yeah, let's let's talk about it. I, th right. This is also, I think, the perfect film to kick off this series again, not having seen most of the movies we're going to talk about. But you do have that gothic kind of horror element because uh, Edward Lionheart, who's played by by Vincent Price, is a classically trained Shakespearean theater actor. Uh, who is kind of obsessed with the past, obsessed with the plays of Shakespeare, the romanticism of those, you know, those lovely words uh, of the bard. But he's also living in 1970s uh, London, which we kind of got a taste for in, in Dracula AD 1972 a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and, and as you mentioned, there's a precursor to the slasher. This also reminded me of a film that I don't think we're talking about this year, at one point it was on the list, but the abominable Dr. Fibes. Right. And we'll definitely talk about that because it, it very much factors into the context of this film. And that's because I was having serious deja vu. I haven't watched that movie in probably 10 years, but I do remember thinking that it was sort of a an inspiration, perhaps, at least spiritually, to the Saw films, which I was a big fan mm. of back in the day. Um, but yeah, these gigantic setups. Uh, theatrical setups uh, for revenge against people. Um, and I thought there was some element of, of those being critics as well. Uh, we don't have to get into it right now, but it was that was that the case? Who was who was he going after in that movie? So in Abominable Dr. Fives, which came out in 1971, um, we had Vincent Price. He was kind of a, a scientist slash composer and his wife dies in a uh, automobile accident and he blames the surgeons for not being able to revive her. Okay. And so he takes his vengeance on the entire medical team and he does it in 
the themes of the seven plagues uh, that Moses visited upon the Pharaoh. And so that idea of a theme was kind of laid out there. Um, and, and it came out the year after Love Story. And the Love Story, uh, well, there is the, I'll tie this in in a second. The, the tagline for Love Story was, love means never having to say you're sorry. And the poster for Abominable Dr. Fives shows, you know, Fives because he's all disfigured from the, the car accident and he wears a Vincent Price mask. And the tagline was, love means never having to say you're ugly. And it was, uh, so it, it already kind of had a cheeky quality to it. And the reason why, because Abominable Dr. Fives was indeed on the list and it did come first. And once again, <laughs> I, I'm like, well, let's go down the road just a little bit because we would have seen Dr. Fives and then we would have seen Theater Blood once again leaving out Dr. Fives Returns, which because it seems to be a theme for me that I only want to watch the first and the thirds of trilogies. Uh, but anyway, so Dr. Fives, my, the, my issue I have with Dr. Fives is that it has this great setup and it has these wonderful creative kills that are inspired by the plagues. Uh, what it doesn't have is because he's wearing a, quote, Vincent Price mask, which is obviously just Vincent Price not moving his face much, and you kind of miss out on all the things that make Vincent Price awesome. You know, all of his, his movement and his facial expressions and his waggling eyebrows, like all the things that just kind of make Vincent Price Vincent Price are kind of stripped away because he's got this immobile expression. And he's also talking through this like tube th through his neck and it's kind of a mechanized quality. So he again loses some of the vocal inflections. So that's what I, I, I and there's so much kind of just weirdness in Fives. I think it's absolutely worth seeing. But, you know, then we go to Return of Dr. Fives where there's less thematics. It's more just kind of like, let's kill a whole bunch of people in creative ways. But there isn't like a, a, a running through theme. But they allow Vincent Price to actually start smirking and waggling eyebrows again. I'm like, okay. So it's like if we put the two of those together, we would have something great. Hey, wait a minute. In 1973, let's put the two together and have a wonderful theme, have Vincent Price at the height of his powers and being able to use all the tools at his disposal. He gets to play like, you know, eight different characters and more, you know, with lots of nose putty and, and beards and wigs and costumes. You know, like he's just having a ball. And that's what, you know, that's what we love about Vincent Price is that he always seems to be enjoying himself. I have never seen him enjoy himself more than in this movie. And this was apparently his personal favorite of all the films that he did. So that's why I wanted to kind of point ourselves toward this one. And uh, I'm curious to hear what you made of it. Well, I'm glad you steered me this way. Um, I am not as familiar with Vincent Price as I should be. I think I've I've seen less than a handful of his films. Um, and I, I always enjoy him. Uh you know, in his movies, because you're right, he does seem to have this this sense of joy. And that really does come out in this film. We'll, we'll jump ahead a bit. But in the the climax, by the way, we're going to be talking spoilers, folks. So if you haven't watched <laughs> the movie, please check it out. Um, there's a bit where his character is burning down the theater that is his lair. Mm. And this is 1973 or 72 when they're filming it. So this isn't the era of special effects or necessarily <laughs> stuntmen he is holding a torch and burning down part of the set. Yeah. And you can just, there's glimpses on his face because they don't do cutaways or anything. You can see him lighting the stuff on fire. 
and you can see him acting, but you can also see him acting as this character, this Lionheart character, thinking, hey, I'm going insane. I'm probably going to die, but I also get to send this stuff up in these great flames. Isn't this cool? Yeah. So it's in character, but it's also you feel like an insight into the actor, almost like when you see Tom Cruise do those crazy Mission Impossible stunts where he's driving a motorcycle off of a canyon and, and a parachute flies out. You're like, no, I don't want a stunt person to do it. I want to get to play with the toys. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that that sense of joy definitely comes through. And I, I yeah, he has I didn't count, but he's got to have way more costumes than just eight in this movie, because his deal is let's just do some setup in 1970. He was up for a best actor award for the like the London critics, theater critics, the critics circle. circle award. Yeah, right. Uh, and he was so sure that he was going to get it because of his, I guess, his own sense of his self worth as an actor that I guess it, and this we only get this in uh, as told to us by one of the critics who's recounting it to, I believe, the police or something. Uh, they made the announcement. He actually stood up right before they announced the name. And it <laughs> turns out it was uh, someone named uh, William Woodstock got right. the award. And uh, Lionheart was so embarrassed that it sort of drove him over the edge. We find out later that he actually stormed into the, I guess, the hotel suite or the offices of the critic yeah, circle like the or post whatever. Awards, right. Right. They're all sipping champagne in their tuxes, which I think it's just so cute. Like I don't, I, I wasn't around back in 72 and swinging London, but I just know that modern critics groups that that's not how they do their <laughs> award shows. There's no tuxes and champagne involved, <laughs> at least not the ones I've been involved in. Um, but he, he bursts through, uh, he gives this kind of grandiose indignant, indignant speech and then hurls himself off the uh, balcony of this impossibly tall uh, window while clutching the statue that he wanted to claim as his own because he felt he deserved it uh, into, I guess, the Thames. And it was assumed that he died. We find this out much later in the film. Uh, earlier on, a lot of these critics just start uh, being invited places or being snatched off the street uh, and ending up in this abandoned theater, which is the lair of uh, Edward Lionheart, who is mysteriously back from the dead. Uh, he gives these one-scene performances of classic Shakespeare plays before dispatching uh, each critic in a manner that is uh, true to the to, to the uh, Shakespearean play. Now, I'm not, again, as familiar with Shakespeare as I should be, but I did recognize some of the beats. You know, one guy gets drowned in a cask of wine. There's a, a fencing duel in a gymnasium which has to seem to be believed it's like it's weird to see a life and death sword match involving trampoline where you can see basketball <laughs> hoops in the background but it's still great and tense yeah, yeah um and so it's a big mystery like how is edward lionheart back from the dead his daughter um edwina played wonderfully by diana rigg is she involved in the killings or is she just uh is she in danger because her father's back and insane uh, we know the answer way before uh, the police do. Um, but yeah, it's this, as you mentioned, it's not a whodunit. It's how they're going to get it and when. Yeah, agreed. And and I mean, I, I, uh, Diana Rigg is uh, billed right alongside Vincent Price. They were both, you know, huge stars at that point. And uh, and they both they both seem to be having a great time. Actually, everybody seems to be having a great time. And that's that's another thing I love about this film is that you know, we have these wonderful British character actors playing our our critic circle, and 
all of them really seem to be having a good time. All of them are given a showcase scene, you know, like it's an ensemble piece, but every person gets their moment uh, facing off against Lionheart. And I think that's just, that's just part of the, the delight of it. And I don't know if you, you recognized Ian Hendry, our main character, uh, Devlin, but he was our, our lone swordsman in Captain Kronos in the bar that you appreciated so much. That's right. Said, You'll be seeing more of him soon. I, here's the thing. I recognized him. I couldn't place him from where, mm. except in this movie, I think it's because it's the 1970s and he's in a suit for most of the film. I kept thinking he looked like Joe Biden looked in the 1970s. <laughs> like it was uncanny. I was like, what am I watching here? <laughs> um, and then later on, there's a scene where um, I think it's the one female critic of the group. Uh, she goes to get her hair done. And of course, uh, it's her undoing. But she's got a bodyguard who's like a uh, British beat cop, Bobby. And from a lower angle, he looks weirdly like Jeb Bush. I don't know what was going on in this. Uh, <laughs> wow, but... <laughs> so political. I know, right? Um, but no, it's, it is, help me out with something here. Sure. All of these critics were intimately familiar with the works of Edward Lionheart because they seem to take great joy in panning his work. In fact, he's got this giant, uh, almost like paste up Bible of every right. review of every performance he's ever given, and most of them are scathing, and that kind of gives him the ammunition to go on his revenge. So they all know what he looks like, what he sounds like, probably what he smells like. When he shows up in disguise, I can understand sometimes it's like shadowy figure situations, like the first time we see him, he's disguised as a cop, and he's all in shadow, and he leads the first guy into... Uh, an abandoned kind of building somehow and there's all these vagrants there that he's supposed to be rousting because they're they're not where they're supposed to be uh they all turn on him and it turns out they're all working for they're, they're like the the batman uh henchmen uh mm. and vincent price played egghead a little bit before this so it's fitting <laughs> it all uh, connected right um but my question is there are too many of these kill situations where He's showing up, he's in disguise, but yet he's talking to them, even as other mm. characters. Right. Vincent Price has an unmistakable voice. Sure. How does, I mean, it's almost like a Superman I... situation with the glasses. Like some of these yep. people don't realize that it's him until he rips off the fake mustache, even though he's right. been talking the entire time, yep. two inches from their face. Just going to have to go along with it. There's there's no defense for that. He's he, he is unmistakably Vincent Price at all times. We wouldn't want him any other way, but yes, it does it does call into question like how do they not recognize or maybe they just like go, oh well he's dead, so delete that file. I don't have to recognize that anymore. It look, and this is nothing against Vincent Price. I no, love his voice, but it is I don't think I've ever heard of anybody who sounds like Vincent Price. <laughs> no he is he is vincent price and uh, that's why michael jackson tapped him to do the thriller rap and you know it's like yeah you're right like there is no one like vincent price there's also just on that note about thriller the, the way he says corpse shell like the only way i can describe the way he does the s is like it's wet i can't quite corpse shell wow yep. so good um all right so let's what's your history with uh with theater of blood how did you come to experience oh my it? gosh well this is funny because this is this is one of my favorite stories uh when i was 10 years old uh we were supposed to go and see 
Theater of Blood as part of a Halloween birthday party. It was a reissue of Theater of Blood in 1978. And so... We, you know, like all these 10-year-old kids are all gathered around. Now, again, this is clearly someone hadn't done their research because this is not a movie for 10-year-olds. So we all get to the, the theater and turns out like our chaperone or whomever has the time wrong. And so we don't get to go see Theater of Blood. We turn and we're like, well, what else movies can, what other movies can we watch? And there's a little movie called Halloween. 1978, a whole bunch of 10-year-olds in there watching Halloween and just dying. Like, you know, we left that place, you know, shells of our former selves. Uh, so I did not get to see Theater Blood at that time, but I did come back around to it uh, in my uh, in my 20s because we were we were watching it as part of our theater in um, in college. And because because we cover, you know, he covers, I think, like 10, 10 different. Uh, hang on. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yes, ten, ten Shakespeare plays get covered over the course of the, the film. And, you know, like I was a horror fan and a, a theater kid, and I was like, this is the greatest film ever made. Uh, and so that was that's my background with it. And I've, you know, since gone back and revisited it numerous times because it is my, it's probably my favorite Vincent Price, although I do have a soft spot for his uh, his work with uh, Roger Corman and the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, uh, which were the ones I, I saw him in first. So I have a soft spot for those, but I just think he's he's given so much to do in this one. And he's, he's clearly having a good time. He was 62 years old at this point in his life. And, uh, you know, like he was, he was, you know, he was a legend already. And uh, this just kind of like gave him his crowning crowning achievement. It is uh, it is a brilliant performance, um, and also the writing is just so strong yes. because he doesn't necessarily want to kill all of his critics; he wants to destroy them. And in one particular case, that nuance uh, really comes into focus. Uh, there is one who has a, a wife, and he's a very jealous man, and so uh, Lionheart plays the long game by setting up himself as a masseuse for this wife who he comes to visit while hubby's away i guess reviewing plays or something except one day he uh he arranges for or he sends a message to the husband like you might want to stop by your house at you know two o'clock in the afternoon see what's what uh, very carefully making it so that lionheart in disguise is seen going into uh the lady's uh, apartment she actually hails him from the window he goes up starting giving her a very vigorous massage which Maybe this is where the sitcom trope came from or the bad movie sex comedy <laughs> trope of like someone's getting a massage in a room, but it sounds like they're having rough sex and someone's outside the door going. <laughs> and that happens here, except the husband, Bert, like before Jack Nicholson with the axe and the shiny, this guy busts through the he door with punches his, hand. his way through the door. <laughs> uh, and, you know it's kind of the the classic Jerry Springer question whenever they have like the, the cheating spouses, you know, and the big reveal on stage and like the woman who's been cheated on is always angry at the other woman instead of angry at the guy. <laughs> like right. there's that kind of misplaced, like it takes two to tango. The, the, the husband like pushes Lionheart disguised as the masseuse out of the way and smothers his wife to death with a pillow. And you can tell it's so weird because she's like, 
it looks like he feels really bad about it in the moment. Like, I wish I didn't have to do yeah, this. Yeah, sorry, right? I have to do this, honey. Yeah. yeah, and and then and of course Lionheart's just like stepping back, and you can kind of see him grinning in the background, like, "Oh, this, this guy is such a dope." <laughs> and then the the punchline to this is yes. Uh, so Lionheart leaves the apartment. Uh, he finds the a beat cop like hanging out on the corner. I think he affects like a French accent or something. He's like, I think it's oh, like Irish, but or Irish, yeah. Oh, excuse me, uh, constable. There's, uh, I think a man just murdered his wife upstairs, and the guy just says, "Oh, thank you, sir." And he just <laughs> takes <laughs> off. Like, you know, thank you, thank you for right. the information. <laughs> yeah, I will pick up that gum wrapper over there. You know <laughs> what? Oh, it's so good. Yeah, and again, I, I mean, uh, Jack Hawkins. Um, you know of of a legendary actor uh that this was his final role he's the one who plays the one who smothers his wife uh and diana doors is his wife uh we get we have a couple of instances of collateral damage um you know like we get the we get she gets murdered even though she had nothing to do with it uh also our police sergeant gets killed when they take the they take the car away and and basically like plant it on a she takes the car away and plants it on the train track and you kind of hear him over the walkie-talkie meet his demise so he was, there's the, two, he was in two, the trunk right yeah I he was think? in the trunk so you get like yeah. two cases of two cases of collateral damage um in addition to all of our our critics so i think it's a you know like although ian hendry is threatened twice twice and doesn't die uh but everybody else meets their maker so we have like body count of i think like 11 11 uh uh 11 victims um you know the ian hendry uh case he plays um peregrine devlin i even the names of the characters in this movie are so theatrical <laughs> and over glorious. the top it's great yeah. but in that the fencing scene that i mentioned uh at the top of this he's going to i guess a, a fencing club event or something or, or practice yeah. uh, his regular partner isn't there uh, so there's this mysterious guy who offers to fence him, and of course he takes off the little ball at the end of the uh, the sword to so that's no longer safe fencing. Uh, so they both uh, start fighting for their lives essentially, and there are trampolines involved. But eventually, uh, Lionheart gets um, Devlin on the ground, and in this iconic close-up, uh, you know, looking down at Devlin. He says, you know, I'm not going to kill you now, but you never know when I'm going to kill you. It could be tomorrow, could be next week, could be next year. I'm going to have, you know, fun doing this. I'm going to destroy you like you destroyed me. But there are a couple of different like hero shot close-ups of Vincent Price in this movie that look like they are, you know, Basil Gogo's paintings. Mm -hmm. uh, like it's almost impossible to believe <clears throat> that these images were captured with film. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, and, and that's one of the things I love. I mean, we don't... Douglas Hickox, who directed this, is Douglas, right? Sorry, I just want to make sure I'm not uh, misspeaking. Yeah, Douglas yes, Hickox, Douglas. Yep. Um, his, his first film was the giant behemoth, which is like a, a giant monster movie from, from England uh, from 1959. And like he does just such great work. Um and I love the, the tone on this one. You can tell me what you think, but I think the tone on this one's so kind of interesting. Like it's not jokey. It's not, uh, it's not like, but it's not played straight either. Like it's, there's a heightened quality to it, 
but it's like a grounded heightened quality, which I feel like is a, you know, obviously a juxtaposition, but like, I feel like there's just such a really kind of rich tone of it feels real, even within theatricalism. And I feel like that's kind of the, the best of all Shakespeare performances. There is that heightened quality because of the language and the performances kind of lend themselves to that, but there's still a ground. It doesn't just like become this hammy, you know, over the top, you know, gesticulating, et cetera. It still feels grounded in an emotional way. And I feel like the, that he really strikes a really nice quality and that everybody, everybody in the film is on the same page. I think that's, that's exactly it. It's weird because it is camp, but it's not camp. Hmm. The camp comes in the, the madness, the mania of Edward Lionheart, who you get the feeling that after he's kind of resurrected from the dead or dragged out of the Thames by that, that gaggle of kind of like disturbed homeless people that very much, it reminded me of uh, Tim Burton's Batman returns the way Selena Kyle is brought back by the cats licking her after she takes the plunge out of the building. And, And then she kind of becomes the leader of the cats. He becomes a leader of this rabble who, become his gang who help him you know with uh you know, they all get into disguises at different points they're infiltrators they're they, they do everything they're bona fide henchmen um <laughs> but that kind of heightened entertainer's attitude infects the film but it doesn't take the film into the realm of camp right it just gets very bizarre like there's the, i think it's the final uh critic before um devlin uh, gets uh, captured the guy with the dogs the titus andronicus yeah yeah um wow uh i knew that when he comes home and first of all i don't know why who like goes into their own apartment and calls for their dogs i know it's daytime and everything but it's very dark in there he just like goes all around his apartment in the complete dark like calling out for his dogs like turn on some lights buddy but then he (laughs) pulls back a curtain and all of a sudden Vincent Price is there with uh, dressed as a French chef and he's got a whole crew with him and apparently was this supposed to be a TV show that just shows up in people's apartments because... I mean that seems to be the setup you know because he uh, our critic is very excited to be on this is your dish Yeah I was like he wasn't drugged this is just supposed to be like maybe that's something that I don't know if it's a British cultural thing or maybe they just needed a setup. Like, yeah, maybe I, mean, I think it's like, yeah, at, it, yeah, the idea of like candid camera or something where, you know, like it, it, it's okay if they invade your house, if they're a TV, if they're, it's a TV show, that's fine. But a cooking show. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, he gets, he gets this, uh, this deluxe, like meat pie prepared for him. And it turns out it's his dogs. And there's a great reveal of the headless, you know, poodles, or the heads are mounted on a quiche or whatever. And this is something that reminded me straight out of Nightmare on Elm Street 5 with uh, Greta's death, where she's basically fed herself. Mm-hmm. Um, they they force feed the the remains of the dog and look dogs uh, in a giant funnel down his throat. Um, and he even has these like Freddy Krueger uh, one-liners. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> again, I don't know how inspirational uh, this was to other horror films, but it feels like some seeds were perhaps planted here. Yeah, I th- I would like to I would like to give credit there. I mean, again, uh, Fives certainly kicked it off. You had the two Fives films, and then this one. Um, and I and I do think you can draw a line right to you know our 
our wisecracking killers of the 80s. Um, now, I mean, you not being as familiar with Shakespeare, I feel like there's still enough kind of information as to why, you know, why, how he is emulating the play. You know, like you get just enough, just enough of a hint of like, okay, this is how Caesar died. He died being stabbed to death by a group. And it's like, okay, that's where this critic dies, stabbed by all the vagrants. It's like, okay, that I can identify that. And it's it's great because they do explain it to the audience, but within the context of the story, it's either during the reveal, Lionheart explains to the victim, right. like, oh, well, you remember this scene from this play, and this is what's going to happen to you. Or it's a critic explaining to one of the cops, like, right. Oh yeah, I just heard about Fred or whatever, and this is all based on one of the plays. And they even have the giant list of uh, the plays from Lionheart's career. It's like it just becomes the checklist, the order in which he's committing right. his crimes. So yeah, it's not very it's it it lays everything out for the audience, but it's not handholdy. It's like it's great because you can have never heard of Shakespeare, but get it and i think also really want to read shakespeare after this yeah. is over because half the stuff in here is like wait that happened in that play i i had no idea that's what othello was about <laughs> yeah you don't re yeah you don't realize just how like bloody and violent like shakespeare was and i will actually kind of that's a great kind of segue is that like the violence in this movie is pretty hardcore like that opening mm -hmm. sequence of uh michael horder and being murdered by the, the vagrants it's like you know there's just blood everywhere uh, you know, you have beheadings, you have, you know, electrocutions, you have people being stabbed with spears. Um, it's like, you know, if you're if you're a horror fan looking for some gore, you know, you'll find it here in, in 1973. Definitely. Um, the final uh, the final setup with Devlin kind of strapped to the chair. And the whole idea is uh, there's a, a track that has been mounted above his head and there are these two daggers that have been dipped in uh, like molten fire, or whatever they're heated daggers. They are going to be released by a sandbag that's running out. They will speed down the track and stab out his eyes. So he will still, assuming he doesn't die of a heart attack, the idea is he's going to survive that, but live the rest of his life blind and you know ruin his life as a critic, yada, yada, yada. Right. But there's a great shot where we see from Devlin's perspective this kind of wavering track with these daggers that are about to come down on us and Vincent Price in the middle, often kind of the distance, like just eagerly <laughs> waiting for it to happen. But Devlin is also telling him off, like, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction and you can right. just see it eating him up. I was, you know, getting a little bit tense watching that, just that POV shot. I was like, cause it really put me in the place of this guy. Yeah. Like he's, he's, you know, stiff upper lip and everything, but he's in for a world of hurt potentially. Yeah, and well, there's, and I think we have a lot of imaginative uh, framing uh, throughout this film. Oh God, there's there's the scene where the guy gets dragged by the horse, you oh. know, that shows up at the funeral, and like when they flip him over, you're like, ooh, that's that's nasty, um, you know. And and there's two there's two really lovely scenes where Price gets to play Shakespeare within the context of the film. One of them is when he recites "To Be or Not to Be." as he's contemplating, you know, jumping to his death, you know, considering suicide. And you get to, you know, it's like, oh, yes, this is a true, you know, contemplation of whether to live or not. And he opts to, you know, throw himself off. And at the end of the film, the um, which is 
the daggers are coming toward his eyes. That is a reference to King Lear, where Gloucester is blinded. And when Diana Rigg is struck by uh, one of the homeless people uh, and, and starts to falter, we think she's going to die. He begins the, the scene of Lear and Cordelia, where, you know, like it, just before Cordelia dies, Lear ha cradles her in his arms and he's, you know, speaking, you know, like you are men of stone. And like the whole ending of the movie is the end of Lear. And you're just like, oh, my God, this this really works. And and I, I I've always I, the 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 uh, screenwriter, uh, I I feel like I, I I just wish he had gotten more. He did. Uh, what's his his name is? Uh, ba, ba, ba. Is it Anthony Greville? Anthony Greville Smith, which is a wonderfully British name, uh, <laughs> but he uh, he did not have like a huge career. And I'm kind of like maybe it was because this was a horror film, but I just feel like there's so much like there's so much going on here that is in the script it's on the page but it's like i would have given this guy many many more gigs uh so i don't disagree with you but and i i'm sure he probably would have liked to have had more gigs as well <laughs> but it's like if you've got a movie like this under your belt it's like you know you don't really need to try and top yourself yeah, no, no. <laughs> um but what, speaking of that that ending you know, there is this great uh, kind of climax where the theater's burning. Mm -hmm. He's taking Edwina uh, crawling up the side of the theater. And you think he's going to, you know, do a repeat of what kind of kicked this all off and just jump either into, I don't know if he was anywhere near a river or just like jump down into the street. Right. But he gets caught. They both get caught up in this, bl this unexpected blast of fire and then yeah. sent flaming into the theater not even off the side of the building i was kind of disoriented i'm like what oh that's where they were yeah. and it's just this beautiful death shot and the capper of the whole thing is down on the ground devlin and the inspector that he's been with devlin says uh what's he say <clears throat> he was overacting as usual but he did he did know how to make an exit this is the critic who had just survived this horrible ordeal, which in part was inspired by the fact that he was an asshole along with his friends. <laughs> and you can just see the cop. He doesn't say anything, but he's kind of like, really? Yeah, right. You were the one who made it out of this. <laughs> and then Devlin just kind of like turns and exits frame. <laughs> yeah. Milo O'Shea plays our, our, our inspector. And he is just, he's another great, you know, character actor from the seventies and eighties. And he has those just marvelous black eyebrows, uh, and, uh, it's just, it was just, it's just so much fun watching, watching these, these performers, many of whom, you know, you'd seen throughout the, throughout their careers. And here they were kind of like having, having this lovely time together. One of the first things that struck me about this movie visually, uh, was the, the sort of the background players who are playing the, the homeless people, mm -hmm. um, aesthetically, this is 1973, the movie I'm about to reference came out two years earlier. But the rundown theater and this kind of like horde of like oddly dressed, you know, half theatrical, half like vagrant, you know, something like Kanye Westwood design um, vagrants reminded me of the rival gang from A Clockwork Orange that we yep. see in that rundown theater that opens that movie. I'm like, I don't know yep. if there's an inspiration there, but it was a really interesting callback. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. 
And, and I mean, I think you're right. Like there is that kind of, um, it's a similar visual aesthetic. Yeah. I mean, that was futuristic London. This isn't quite the same, but even though in Clockwork Orange, it was a London of the future. It was very much still, it looked like London. There's not like spaceships flying around. So uh, there definitely was that. I think, uh, I think my, aesthetic. I think part of it is also just, there's a lot of, it seems like it's being shot by natural light. Like a mm -hmm. lot of that, like it just, there's a, there's a feeling of this being captured like in, in the, in real time, in the real moment. And I think part of that lends to uh, the horror of just people walking around in daylight, even though they have some, especially towards the end of the film, like everyone's got a police escort or there's, or the police escort is on the way to them. It's that right. vulnerability of like, I'm just walking around doing my thing. And I can easily just walk in the wrong door and no one ever sees me again, except that my mangled corpse. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that. Like, you know, like the cops, the cops are not made out to be the best uh, keepers of the peace. Um, like every, almost all of these witnesses are, I think like three murders occur before they say, okay, we're going to, we're going to watch all of you now. And like all of them are under some kind of observation and everybody dies. It's like, huh. Not not the uh, not the sharpest uh, you know tools in the shed there. It's a little bit of crossover from our Academia Giallo uh, in some <laughs> cases. Um, I was surprised, and they never comment on it. This is just something I kind of took away. Was it's a revenge picture, and mm. they keep bringing up this uh, William Wood uh, Woodstock, Woodstock, yeah, guy who won the award instead of Lionheart. I would have thought that in a different horror movie perhaps this guy would have been on the list sure. but the fact that he's not he never even appears in the movie i don't think it almost speaks to you know lionheart isn't mad at him for winning the award right from his perspective he won fair and square and he probably respects him as, as an actor not nearly as much as he respects himself because this guy's sense of ego is way inflated well, he actually doesn't have any kind words to say about Mr. Woodstock. He, you get the sense that he's kind of like a, a Brando type who's who's mumbling and, you know, doing like a lot of naturalistic uh, performance, whereas, you know, which is something that like an old school performer like Lionheart would would have not looked kindly upon. OK, possibly. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to finally thread this. He probably doesn't like what he does. Right. Yeah. But he doesn't he respects the fact that he's doing something that is earning him acclaim honestly, even if it's not something that he would prefer. It's like, you know, these yeah, these new age kids and their, you know, method acting or whatever. That's all right. BS. But at least he's, you know, the critics chose him. They were wrong, but it's not his fault that he won. Right. I think that's I think that's right. Like the fact that he doesn't target his fellow performer. It's like it's not it's not the perform it's not Woodstock's fault that the critics were wrong, you know, like <laughs> it's the critics' fault. And so he rightly targets them. And I just it's it's funny how like each one of them, you know, like was assigned a different <laughs> a different night at the uh at the theater to just you know savage his his performances. I'm also kind of like like to do 10 Shakespeare plays over the course of a year, that is a wildly ambitious uh program that's a that's a very a very ambitious schedule was it only a year i i, I missed like yeah because he was supposed to get the period. best actor is the, is the best actor of the year and it was his season of shakespeare that he expected to oh. get the award for 
And the idea of like him staging 10 Shakespeare productions over the course of a year, I'm like, Chicago Shakespeare does like, you know, like six. Well, I mean, we don't know anything about these productions. It could have been him like doing a one man play for, for all of these or something, sure, you know, sure. here, here one week and close the next. <laughs> um, but no, it's uh, I did for as much as the people who made this movie again from my perspective don't know how critics groups work or celebrate um <laughs> i did think that they got some of the insights into the character of a critic pretty well mm. um because it, i think one of them says as they're being uh confronted or about to meet their doom maybe it was even uh, devlin during one of the encounters saying like we were trying to, or I was trying to encourage you to help you improve, to better yourself. I have certainly fallen into that hubris. I probably still do in some of my commentary, not that it's my place, but it's the way I feel right. like when I'm watching a performance or watching an actor who perhaps, you know, you just feel I, like I they have, they have more they could offer. I, a perfect example of this and I don't do it anymore, of course, since the news came out. But Bruce Willis, once you know, one of the titans of action and, and box office, uh, in recent years has gone to doing like twenty direct-to-video movies a year. Right. The Razzies in twenty twenty-one, I think, or twenty twenty, came up with a special category for worst performance by Bruce Willis in a Bruce Willis movie. And there were like 10 Bruce Willis movies that were nominated and all this stuff. Of course, last year it came out that he's suffering from aphasia, no telling how long it's been afflicting him. So it's not fair to kind of like treat him like that. Right. But there was that kind of attitude, like what happened to you, man? You were at the top of your game and now you're just kind of slumming it. You're better than this material. Yeah. It's easy to kind of fall into that line of thinking of course, not knowing the context of what the actor is going through, what's going on in their lives. Maybe they are invested in this role. Maybe they like the material. You know, who's who's it to the critic to say what an actor should be doing with their time or how they should do their performance? Unfortunately, it's a line that we kind of have to toe as critics and hope that we have some degree of actual insight. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think that's a it's a great observation is that the critics are just doing their job. I mean, they yes, they are somebody with an opinion. And it's only an opinion. Hopefully it's an informed opinion, but it is just a person with an opinion who happens to have a, a platform, you know, whether it be, you know, uh, a newspaper or uh, a podcast or, you know, like a blog, you know, like that's really, I've, and I've said that for years as an actor, it's like, it's just one person's opinion. And the fact that they have influence may not be, you know, that may not be right, but it is how we we tend to use our critics as arbiters to be like, okay, I can't see everything. You tell me what I should see. And if your tastes and mine align, then I'm like, okay, cool. You liked it. I'll probably like it as well. You didn't like it. I'm probably not going to like it, you know? And then every once in a while you'll diverge and you'll be like, what? You didn't like that? What the hell? Well, it's also interesting because we're talking in the context of theater of blood, we're talking about theater, mm -hmm. not, movies so i imagine it's kind of a different ball game especially back in the in the 70s in london you probably had these this panel of 10 or whatever critics were probably the tastemakers oh yeah of the town and i think it was uh yeah lionheart did go off on one of the critics saying like how dare you you know you criticize my performance but you also don't take into account the people who made the sets 
the the directors, the everybody it takes to put on a play, you're dismissing all of their efforts with a few you know pithy lines, right? Uh, which is something that uh, you know Michael Keaton in the movie Birdman, which was also a movie about you know kind of Broadway, he has an encounter with a critic and he kind of lets her have it in what I think was a pretty brilliant exchange, but in that case, theater tickets I imagine back then are kind of like they are now. It's not like oh I'm going to rent this movie for four dollars. It's like it's a night out. It's an investment yeah. for each ticket. So if you're telling someone or a city, hey, this production is not worth your time, that can ruin people. Oh, sure. I mean, that's absolutely the case, you know, and that was always the the case on Broadway. You know, you had certain critics who could make or break a play. And to a lesser extent, that's true. Of, you know, like the major papers here in Chicago, you know, like if you get a rave, you're you're going to do well. And if you don't, you probably won't, you know, because again, there's only so many productions you can see, you know, Chicago is a great theater town. There's a like a hundred, you know, plays going on at any time. And so you can't see them all. So you, you lean on the critics to say, Hey, what did you like? You, you know, you supposedly know what you're talking about. I'm going to follow your lead. And, you know, yeah. So for, and you know, the, the idea that Lionheart seems like he must've been successful with the public at least because he was allowed to keep performing and keep performing. I mean, he's a legend and the idea that like the critics just hated him, but the audiences loved him. I mean, how, you know, we see that show up in Hollywood blockbusters all the time where it's like, Oh yeah. You know, transformers, one, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> seven, eight, nine, ten. It's like they make a billion dollars and the critics are just like, Oh my God, stop going to these movies. <laughs> um, you know, so it's like, you know, there's just no, you know, the critics are going to be the critics. And, and and here we are in award season where we see that all the time where it's like, this is not, this is not the most popular movie with the audiences, but you know, that's not usually who wins the Oscar for best picture. Right. I mean, the Oscar nominations came out, you know, earlier this week uh, by the time this episode goes up and, you know, Top Gun Maverick yep. got a best picture nod. As did Avatar. Right. Which had a lot of people scratching their heads, except for the fact that those were more so Top Gun because Avatar made a good portion of its money because it came out like the end of December. Right. So it really crossed that two billion dollar mark in 2023. But Top Gun Maverick was instrumental in helping a narrative. Movies are back. People are going to the theater again. You yeah. can't use this excuse of like, oh, it's still the pandemic hangover. No, you don't make a billion dollars and people are afraid to go out. So it's a great success story. Where does it fall on the artistic merit scale? That's why you've got, you know, other <laughs> films kind of on that roster. But there is that kind of populism versus, you know, the critics debate that has been the center of Rotten Tomatoes, you know, rouse for the last decade plus. Mm -hmm. It's all a very interesting conversation. And I think... Theater of Blood is a film that really captures a lot of that. Maybe it's the eternal question of art versus criticism and that that kind of relationship, that symbiosis. Uh, you can watch this movie today, even though it's 50 years old, and find a lot of relevance in it. Plus, it's a damn good time, and it's a damn bloody good time. I agreed, and I'm glad. He, I'm, it was fun to kind of, here we are, like, swerving into, like, actual social commentary and criticism. Um <laughs> But yeah, you know, like this, I think this is a movie that is smart. And and I like I like the fact that it can be, you know, as any good horror can be. It can be smart and it can be bloody and it can be vicious and it can be funny. 
You know, it's like there is no just one thing, but I feel like this this serves up quite a few. Definitely. Um, I do want to wrap up with something that you had said, and I want to ask you about this or dig into it just a bit. You said Lionheart was popular or successful in his time before his untimely death. Maybe I missed something, but what are you basing that on? I, I'm based uh, simply by the fact that he has been performing as long as he has. If you're no good, uh, you don't get to keep <laughs> keep getting roles and keep getting cast and things like that. So I, I that's I think that's where I'm basing that on is that at some point at least he had some success, and okay. he was he was a uh, clearly he'd done a lot of Shakespeare. And that's what uh, um, Devlin says. He's like, I was trying to get him to do something else, to move into the into the 20th century, you know, and, and to do something, you know, uh, reflective of today as opposed to just the past. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of the, the brilliance of that climax is it is the big, you know, kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre dinner scene <laughs> of this movie where you've got representations of all the dead critics there a recreation of the award ceremony yeah wow yeah. and essentially devlin is the as the main audience the guest of honor there as lionheart is presented with the award and it's essentially like you wanted me to push the boundaries of what can be done in theater right i've done it yeah like <laughs> it's yeah, like jack this is I was going to say, it's like Jack Nicholson said in Batman, I make art until someone dies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, he does. He kind of like takes theater to a whole different level. Like this becomes every one of these becomes theater for one, you know, like he is putting on a play for the purpose of one audience member, one specific audience member. Like he stages all of this stuff and it's purely for one audience member and to, to, you know, like, I think that's kind of, you know, that's kind of extraordinary because we have, we have all kinds of theater, like where it's immersive now, where you actually will travel through a location. And, you know, like there's really, uh, there's some fun things where you like, you'll be part of like a dinner party and, you know, like you're over here listening to this conversation. Meanwhile, this conversation is going on and you will never know what that conversation is because you're over here. And so you have to go and do it again. And like, there were, there were things like that, like your idea of like recreating the award show. I'm like, yeah, like that is theater. Like we are telling, we are retelling this story once again. Yeah. At one point, I think it's during the second kill uh, in the setup. He says, this is live theater with audience participation. <laughs> um, yeah. But the reason I asked about you know, his career beforehand, because we really only get, aside from the context that you gave, which I think is a great insight, we have Edwina who's constantly talking about how, what a great actor her father was and what a success, but right. she's also clearly biased in his favor. So right. I could imagine that both of them were kind of delusional because they wanted it to be true. Whereas he was just in these kind of like low rent productions that are, you know, it's dusty old Shakespeare where you've got the up and coming Brando types who are really trying to, you know, get, put asses in seats but yeah. yeah that's all kind of like for the audience to to figure out and and puzzle over which is another reason i think this is a great film it doesn't give you all the answers it kind of makes you imagine what life was like what what led up to these events truly yeah. so i think i think we're gonna have a, a blast going beyond hammerland if this show is any uh indication so thank you ac <laughs>
Absolutely. Well, and again, thank you for, as always, for for uh, uh, laying out the uh, laying out the menu and saying, "Hey, what do we want to serve?" <laughs> uh, not not uh, not French poodles, poodles. not no. poodle pie. Mm-mm. No, not at all. We love animals on this show. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I understand. I haven't read it yet, but I, I have a link which I'm uh, sharing below. You actually wrote about Theater of Blood, so mm. uh, we'll be able to share that. Folks, go check that out. Check out all of AC's work at uh, Horror 101 with Dr. AC. And um, yeah, we'll be back next month. I don't remember what's on the schedule. Don't tell me. We'll just we'll just, uh, we'll just announce it later. All. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Um, all right, man. Thank you very much. Uh, do you have? I'm sorry. Do you have any closing thoughts uh, on this movie? Uh, no, and and I'm just glad that we were able to kick it off with with some Vincent Price because I feel like we haven't. Have you? Have you? Have we had a Vincent Price in any of our our talks? We did. We talk about the fly. We talked about the Jeff Goldblum fly. I don't think we talked about the Vincent Price fly. Okay, I. I, I either wrote about or I talked about the fly at one point because okay. I think so. But yeah, he was in that movie. And he was great in it. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, there's maybe that'll, that'll be one of our after we return to Hammerland <laughs> in 2025. We're gonna go to we're gonna become priceless. Or there you know, go, there you go. But anyway, I'm gonna let you go, man. Thanks a lot. Take care, everybody out there. Uh, like and subscribe and all that business. And uh, till next time, whenever that is, whatever that is. Thank you and take care. Mm-hmm.